Welcome to the She Collective podcast. episode of the She Collective podcast. I'm Ro, I'm your host and my God, it feels so, so good to be here. I absolutely love podcasts. I listen to them when I am folding clothes, when I'm driving, when I'm walking. And I think they are such an incredible way of learning about ourselves, about, you know, learning in general, educating ourselves whilst we're doing other things because we're super busy, right? And so it feels really amazing to have another platform to kind of move our movement forward. And And, you know, for a long, long time, I felt a real imposter syndrome. Who am I to have a podcast? Will anyone want to listen to what I've got to say? But something that I've learned over the last few years is that the times that I have made myself deeply uncomfortable because I'm pushing myself out of my comfort zone, those are the times where real magic has happened. And I truly believe that this podcast can be something seriously, seriously powerful. Because if you know me and you know what I'm about, you'll know that I am absolutely on a mission when it comes to women's wellness. It's not just a membership. We are a movement as the She Collective. And it's really game momentum, you know. It's really great to see so many women turning their back on toxic diet culture or just accepting that they're just going to have to feel a bit shit about themselves and really making the most incredible breakthroughs. And the power of it is because we're doing it together. You know, we're not doing it alone. And that is just so wonderful because our inner narrative can be really, really dangerous. So my inner narrative, when it came to the podcast, could have been really dangerous. But when I put it out to there to people, they were like, yes, start a podcast. And it was my community that really got me here. So a huge thank you to them to basically giving me the balls, essentially, to being here. So the way that this podcast is going to go is I want it to be, you know, another platform for me to educate women around their wellness. We're going to talk a lot about uh, mindset. I'm going to give you lots of tools and tricks and things that can really be implemented into your life. Because one of the things that really motivated me to be a PT, but create the She Collective to be what it is, is that I found a lot of the information around health made it feel really hard. And when I started doing, you know, my own wellness, when I started participating in my own wellness journey, I discovered these easier ways, easier ways of doing things. And that's what we do in the She Collective. And that is what I want to open your mind to. The fact that health does not need to be hard. So the idea of every episode is that whatever we are talking about, we are going to be talking about health in a way which is going to make things as easy as possible. That is really, really important. Sometimes I'm going to be talking to guests because I don't know everything. (laughs) So when there's somebody who knows more than me, I'm really hoping that they are going to come on board and help me, um, you know, and educate you. But every time, you know, these chats are unpolished, they are not perfect because I am human. And that is something that I used to see as a little bit of my weakness, the fact that I wasn't the PT with a six pack and things like that. 
Now I've realized that actually that's my superpower is that I am human. I do have a bit of a messy life. So when women are going through things, I'm there right there with them. And I think that is our superpower as women is that we can be vulnerable when we can be open and when we can come together. So that is exactly what I want for you from this podcast. So one final thing before we crack on with the first episode, Um, I'm quite quickly realising as I talk into this microphone that it could feel a little bit like I am talking into the abyss if I (laughs) don't get any feedback. So I would absolutely love it if you could subscribe, rate, review if you enjoy this podcast episode. get in touch on Instagram, tag me on Instagram. All of these things as a female business owner, they mean the world of difference. And I know that sometimes those amazing uh, little moments where you get a review or a testimonial have really picked me up over the last few years. Okay, enough of the chit chat. Let's get into this week's episode. Okay, so I am a big believer that sometimes you've got to look backwards before you take a big leap forwards. So in today's episode, this is just going to be selfishly a really, really personal one. I'm going to be very open, very vulnerable with you because there's a bit of a story behind the She Collective. I'm not your average PT. I did not like exercise at all. In fact, I I really genuinely thought it was a bit of a conspiracy theory. (laughs) I thought everyone was just lying to make themselves look good. Um, I tried everything out there. So I tried, you know, celebrity DVDs. I tried boot camps. I tried so many different things. And then when it came to diet, oh my God, I mean, honestly, just toxic. I I think I went on my first diet when I was 12. Um, I did the cabbage soup, the 5-2, everything. And I have to say, I was absolutely convinced that there was nothing was going to change. I couldn't see it ever changing. I thought that I was destined to a life of feeling uncomfortable in my body, never having body confidence, of marking my worth by how much I was on the scales, you know, either on a diet, off a diet, either exercising or not exercising. But I just never seem to be able to get the balance and I certainly never seem to be able to make these things easy. So if, you know, (laughs) me 10 years ago could see me sat here kind of on an absolute mission to help women, you know, exercise, make diet easier, all of those things, I would have, I, I would have had a really good laugh, a really good laugh, but I am here. So where did it all start? Well, When I was 22, I was finishing up at Birmingham University. I uh, had big plans. So I planned to move to New York and, you know, I was starting to kind of find my feet and I was really excited about the prospect of what I was going to do. I wanted to get into TV, that sort of world. Anyway, (laughs) I talk to women about the curveballs, talk about this for a curveball. So... (laughs) I found out that I was pregnant with twins. So I was super sick on a night out. I actually had a dream that I was pregnant, took a pregnancy test the next morning and lo and behold, it was positive. Um, It wasn't simple. I was super, super sick. Obviously, the decision to go ahead in itself wasn't simple. But, you know, your body's full of hormones. Something just told me that this was kind of meant to be, even though it wasn't, you know, it wasn't part of the plan. We all know that sometimes the best things in life, they're not part of the plan. 
But as I will say, adapt, don't give up. So <laughs> there was no choice with this one. Um, it became quite quickly apparent. I wasn't, you know, I was no longer with the dad that I was going to be doing this alone. And I was naive, if I'm honest. I was super, super naive. I loved babies, had always loved babies, had held babies, had a baby niece. I really didn't ever for a second um, kind of get to grips with quite how hard it would be, not just when the babies arrived, but through the pregnancy. So when I got pregnant, was one of the first times that I actually was regularly exercising. I was running and I wasn't enjoying it. I still don't enjoy running if I'm honest, but I wasn't enjoying it. But anyway, I I was small. I was a small frame and my body changed beyond belief so, so quickly. Whilst I was 22 and still at university and no one else looked like I did, I was quite literally expanding by the day, you know, kind of all of those delightful things that happen during a pregnancy, kind of the swollen boobs, the stretch marks, all of that. And it was really hard to handle. And I was growing, it turns out, two giants. They were absolutely flipping enormous. So by the time that I was sort of five months pregnant, I really had a lot of my physical capabilities actually just taken from me. I had that thing where your pelvis slightly separates. So I was living in a chair. It was my grandpa's old chair, which was a lazy boy chair that used to literally tip me out, sleeping in there, living in this chair, ticking off the days, literally one hour at a time. I used to tick off the hours in the day to just get through it because it was physically so, so tough. And that was all the pain, let alone the sickness and the fact that I was being sick multiple times a day and doing my finals. So it was a pretty dark time and it was a pretty testing time. But in a way, I feel like a twin pregnancy is kind of like that because it's kind of preparing you and giving you that mental and physical strength that you're going to need when those babies actually arrive. So after a really kind of rough pregnancy, at 34 weeks, eventually, uh, my body said enough. And I got preeclampsia, which is a high blood pressure condition in pregnancy, which can be super dangerous if it's untreated. So in a very much emergency, um, I will never forget the the look of my mum in her scrubs above me. <laughs> Poor mum having to watch her daughter go through it. But the boys were delivered by emergency C-section and whisked away. So that was, you know, another really hard part was the sort of going through. I mean, I think about it now and this would never happen, right? So they put me, uh, after I was in intensive care, they put me up on a ward with five other women who had their babies next to them who were crying. So my milk was coming in. I'm 22 years old. I haven't got a clue what has happened to my body because suddenly I've become Pamela Anderson. And I just remember like shifting my way out of bed, having been so, so poorly with the, you know, C-section scar, all of that stuff, shifting my way into the corridor and sort of trying to like yelp for help from from a midwife to just sort of like come and relieve me. And she, I remember the relief of her bringing me this pump and just being like, Jesus Christ, being a woman is hard. It was... um. It was quite a lesson to learn at a young age, but the boys were in ICU for two weeks and then I got to take them home. And then the fun begins, doesn't it? You know, sleepless nights, kind of the loneliness of being on my own all the time. You know, my friends being 
off starting their adventures in London and all sorts of places, starting their careers. And it was a super dark time. And having got through the pregnancy, I was kind of just like, oh my God, I'm going to have these little babies in my arms and it's all going to be fine. And it was a real reality check. It was so incredibly tough. I have never had children that sleep. These two in particular, it was like tag teaming. It'd be one, then the next, one, then the next. And it was just such a mentally rough time. And also to be watching this body that had been so young and I had taken so much for granted have changed so much because one of the biggest things that I didn't realize is that when you do lose weight, you know, at an extreme rate, which I was because I was producing milk for these two babies, you know, burning it off and then hardly finding time to feed myself, I lost I think it was five stone in three months. And what I was left with was a body that I literally didn't recognize. I mean, my tummy looked like elephants, an elephant's ass. That's the only way I can describe it. It was, it was shocking. Um, you know, my boobs felt completely disfigured and I just felt like I'd lost myself. I really did. I, 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 you know, I think I just was so determined that, you know, people had said, oh, Ro, you can do it. You're so strong. Like, you'll be fine. That I was so determined to put on a face that I wasn't willing to admit that beneath that face, I was absolutely drowning. Like, I remember doing bedtime every night with the boys with a bottle of wine and I would just count continuously to try and keep my breath. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Over and again, just to try and keep my cool, just to try and keep breathing throughout those bedtimes. And I think one of the hardest bits is when you're a single mom is just not having that person to just be really honest with or just be able to hand over a baby without having to say thank you so much or I'm so sorry or they're not doing you a favor they're in it with you and even though I had the best mum in the entire world even though I had the most amazing friends it very much felt like it was me and the boys and those nights when they were little were incredibly testing but the thing is about babies is we all know if you are a mum you know that it's a phase and you come out the other phase and I remember a friend's mum saying to me you know they won't be babies forever so I had this sort of glimmer of hope that okay it hadn't been quite what I thought it was going to be I you know was a little bit naive but one day they're going to feed themselves one day they're even going to dress themselves and I could visualize these two gorgeous babies that I had being these little boys running around on my mum's farm and it was just it was all going to be okay so there was this glimmer of hope that was pulling me through now that glimmer of hope lasted all of about three weeks (laughs) so I knew pretty early on that something wasn't right with Alfie so Charlie the firstborn twin was sitting up he was pushing off his tummy. He was doing all these sort of things. Alfie started doing those things and then suddenly he stopped. So the legs stopped kicking 
and it felt like he was getting weaker to me, not stronger. He was getting ill continuously. He was losing weight. So naturally, when these things right off the start, when they started, I was going to the doctors and I was saying, something's not right. And I don't know whether it was my age or the lack of authority in my voice or whatever it was, but no one would listen. And I'm talking multiple doctors would not listen to me. So eventually, you know, I think it took about four months and he was clearly like declining. Um, I got a referral and the pediatrician literally just batted me off. He said, you're comparing them, they're twins, he'll catch up. And it felt like I was in a nightmare in a glass box, screaming from the top of my lungs and no one would listen to me. It was really quite awful. And you you start to really doubt your own mind. Like, am I going crazy? Like, maybe he is okay. But then I'd wake up and I'd notice something else had changed. Something else was happening. He'd get ill again. His, you know, his weight was dropping again. He wouldn't eat. And I just had to find that inner fire and scream from the top of my lungs. Not literally scream, but I did make a formal complaint to the hospital. I wrote in detail what was happening. And unfortunately, that is what it took to be heard. And suddenly I had a one-to-one line with a consultant and, you know, and I was suddenly getting all these kind of um, appointments through which was great, but we weren't getting anywhere. There was no diagnosis and Alfie was still declining. So one of the letters had this one sentence and it said, there is still a risk of a primary neurological condition. And I just remember sitting there one night and plowing through the internet and I came across this one condition, SMA. SMA stands for spinal muscular atrophy. It is a primary neurological condition, just like it said in the letter. It's degenerative. It's the biggest killer of children uh, in this country under the age of two. And it was Alfie. I was reading about my child, every single bit of it from the frog legs to the chest to the shit, uh, uh, you know, he had a kind of a tremor in his hand. I I knew. I just knew. I didn't want to know. I didn't want it to be like that. I, you know, I prayed. I literally remember getting down on my knees, cupping my hands and praying. I'm not even religious, but praying to God knows what. Just please don't let it be SMA. Anyway, I pushed for a blood test and the results came back on the weekend of Kate and Will's wedding. My mum was in Spain. My brother was, uh, both my brothers were away. So I just remember the words, bring someone with you. <laughs> and you never want to be told that, do you? When you're waiting for news, if you know that you've got to take somebody with you, you know it's not good news. Um, it's weird kind of repeating these words. I feel like I'm reliving it. I can feel it (laughs) in my body because naturally it was one of the most traumatic moments of my life. I didn't have Alfie with me naturally, but I went with Kay who had been my childminder when I was little. She was really, really close to me. And I just remember hearing the words, not being able to react, not being able to breathe, leaving the room and just collapsing. I just felt like I felt 
like it was the end of all of our lives. Because I knew this was going to be emotional. When you feel that you are going to lose someone in that way, deep breath. (laughs) You just don't want to live. You don't want to live. I didn't want to live. I just knew that from that point, I really, I I just thought I just have to survive because I've got another one. (laughs) I've got another one. And the description of how things would decline, the fact that they felt that he was SMA type one from the way that he was presenting, you know, they said two to three years and it just floored me. It really floored me. But I was so lucky when I look back because I just got wrapped up by this huge hug of love from everyone around me, from my family, you know, from friends. And I just knew that it was just going to be a case of I couldn't look forward. I just had to take every day as it came. But once you're living with that sort of knowledge and with that sort of heaviness, you just, the the level of rawness of that kind of news, it's just, it's too much to handle, right? It's just too much to handle. So I knew that I needed to continue to be a mum on the everyday level. I had to continue to looking to look after these boys. So I went to the doctors and uh, my sort of journey with beta blockers, antidepressants started and I just wanted to numb out the world. I knew I had to function. I knew I had to put a smile on my face for these boys. But every video that I took, I couldn't help but think that that's going to be in a memory box one day or, you know, or just I'm going to have to watch like, him decline so every single time he'd get a cough or a cold I thought this is it this is it and the level of like trauma that puts in your body is really hard to shake and I I've still not shaken it I've still not shaken it but that time was the darkest time of my life there is absolutely no doubt that that was the darkest time of my life and As time went on, you know, it didn't get any easier. He started getting ill a lot. The kind of the hospital trips, the lack of mobility as he was getting bigger. You know, he was getting bigger, but his mobility wasn't there. So I was lifting him and doing all his care and it was slightly breaking me, all of these things. And I couldn't see any hope. I just couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Like there didn't feel like there was any light at the end of the tunnel that it felt like the rest of my life would be about surviving. So when this all happened, there was probably a two, three year stretch of my life where I feel like I have very little memory because firstly, of all the things that I was numbing myself with, But secondly, because there's such a disjoint when I look back at that time between the woman that I presented to the world and the woman that I felt inside. 
because I kept being told that I was so brave, that I was so strong. I didn't feel like I could present to the world that I was anything but brave and strong. So that is the persona that I just kept putting out there. Bubbly Ro. People want Bubbly Ro. People want Fun Ro. They don't want Ro who's talking about her kid who's going to die. Like, you know, it's shocking, right? Even to hear those words. When I hear myself, I take take myself aback. It probably took you aback. Nobody wants that. So there was this huge disjoint between me being ultimately really, really positive and then the me who used to sit when I used to put them to bed and hold Alf's hands and stroke his hand and cry over his sleeping body. You know, that's the reality of what things were like. And then when the boys were sort of at the age where they were sort of, you know, they were getting older now and we'd had a few episodes now where Alfie had been really, really poorly But he'd come out the other side and I could see that there was a shift within what the doctors were saying. So they weren't saying like, oh my God, he's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, he's not going to walk. We knew that these were all different levels of grief. You know, you grieve the loss of the future, the loss of even, you know, the idea that we'll be able to go to the park, all these different things. But this loss in terms of, um, you know, this short life, it felt like things were shifting. And the doctors were saying, I don't think that he is, you know, a type one. We think he is type two. And type two had a longer life expectancy. And I kind of just had to shift my brain and the gear that it was in, not thinking, okay, I'm going to have, you know, an adult and he's going to, you know, he's going to live. I'm not, I'm going to outlive him. We weren't at that point yet, but I kind of shifted gears of, If I'm going to be in this for a really long time, I need to shift the way that I feel because I can't go through every single day feeling like I am drowning. It is exhausting and my boys deserve more and I deserve more. So at that point, I had to really find a fire within me and I knew that I wanted to shift the way that I felt about myself. And I knew that I didn't want to feel so constantly numb from, you know, from things that were numbing me. Like I'm actually a big fan of antidepressants when people need them. But for me, I was either on the wrong dose or the wrong type because I just felt numb. So to be able to come off antidepressants, to be able to stop drinking so much, all of these things, to be able to be a good mum, I knew that I needed to find me again because somewhere along the line, that girl had gone. I have no idea who that row at university is at this point. Like I, I, I'm just, I'm just here straight lining it into surviving this horrendous situation. So to be able to find myself again, I, you know, thought I've got to change the way that I feel about myself. And when this friend, you know, suggested doing this boot camp to me, I kind of like laughed at her. I said, look, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Exercise is meant to be really good for your mental health. But I just trust me when I say that I absolutely hate it. But she told me about her story with exercise. She told me about how she had absolutely hated it. But this boot camp was different, that this community was different, that the level of accountability that you get 
And at this point, like literally, what have I got left to lose? Like at this point, like I haven't got a clue who I am. I don't feel anything in life. So the fact that, you know, there might be something that might give me a bit of a spark. And I had this unique opportunity where I had this um, American au pair who was coming to help me because I was running a catering business at the time, which God awful, God awful catering business, by the way. The catering business itself was great. But please, if you're ever thinking about going into catering and you like your nervous system, just don't do it. Just don't do it. So I was cooking in the evenings because I did, that didn't require, um, it didn't require what you call it, childcare. That's the one. And I was then, you know, with the boys in the day, it meant I wasn't paying for childcare, but I knew over the summer I was going to have loads of different events going on. So I had this American au pair coming. So I, there was someone else in the house, right? I could get out of the house. I could get to this boot camp. So I started going and yeah, I absolutely hated it. <laughs> absolutely hated it. I was actually like, I knew it. I knew that this was the case. It's just hideous. And, you know, I'd get the red face, the burning in my throat. And I was like, I don't want to ever come back here again. But something in me, I don't know what it was. I think it wasn't even just something in me. It was just the level of external things to me as well. The fact that I was meeting all these people going, I want to see you back here, come back here, like the accountability, all of those things. I didn't give up. I did keep going. And something changed, something clicked. I had been going for about two weeks. And in the third week, I remember being like, oh my God, if it doesn't change soon, I'm out. Like I'm absolutely out. And I just remember doing the stretches and being like, I want more of this. I I love this. It was like every emotion that was inside me had come out. And I got into the car and I sobbed. (laughs) Doesn't sound like it goes with that. I want more of this. I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed for about half an hour. I then yelled. (laughs) It sounded like a mental. I yelled and I let everything that was numb, that had been holding me down out. I just let it out into the atmosphere and I just felt alive. I just felt alive. Even if it was hard feelings, I just wanted to feel again. I didn't care. I didn't care what the emotions were. I just wanted to feel something again. And then I just kept going and I kept bawling in the car and I kept, you know, having these huge emotions, but it was shifting. You know, the literally that cape that I was living under, anxiety, emotional, awful, numb cape was shifting. And I felt it in every single aspect of my life. I was, I naturally wanted to sort of see the changes, but even though I wasn't like seeing the changes, because that is a lie, you don't see the changes immediately when it comes to exercise and it makes people really impatient. Even though I wasn't seeing those, I couldn't give a shit. I was like bouncing off the walls with energy. Suddenly like, you know, even though the boys were still not sleeping, even though they're four, I actually had the energy to deal with them. I actually wanted to take them out. I wanted to see friends because I didn't want to hide away because there wasn't this disconnect between who I am to the outside world and who I feel inside. And it was blowing my mind. Like, honestly, the fact that A, I was sticking to it and B, the fact that it had shifted, that I was actually enjoying moments in the workouts. Like, even if there were workouts that I wasn't enjoying, 
I just knew and I could see the bigger impact that it was having on my life. And that's what I always say to women, you know, those moments on the mat, it's not really about the moments on the mat. It's about the wider impact that it has on your life. And to feel that connection between the girl that was being shown to the world and the girl that was living on the inside, it just felt so refreshing after so many years of it not. So, you know, I'm here, I'm sustaining exercise, I've got the support to make it happen. And then naturally, a curveball comes along. (laughs) This wasn't a bad curveball, but I got an email and the email was from the boy's dad. He was explaining that he wanted to meet the boys. And whilst it was a massive shock to me, I knew that I had always made a commitment that if he decided that he wanted to get involved in the boys' lives, that that door was never closed. That was really, really important to me because it wasn't about me. It was about the boys. So he met the boys and it was, you know, very, very emotional. And naturally, every part of me had feelings about it, uh, feelings of resentment, feelings of being like, I'm not going to like him. And, you know, and those were widespread throughout a lot of people who had known me, seen me with the boys and things. But it was pretty obvious to me that he wasn't a bad guy. It was pretty obvious to me that he had been through a lot in his own way. And so, He was getting to see the boys. It was quite early days. And then another curveball comes in. (laughs) This one, not such a nice one. So Alfie got really, really poorly, like really poorly. He couldn't even be transferred to intensive care because he was that poorly. And there was one night where it was really touch and go. The consultant who was on... um, who was on duty actually stayed on past a shift throughout the entire night to sit in the room with me and Alfie. And it was really touch and go and it was awful. So when we had discovered that he was so poorly, my mum had called the boy's dad and he had come down from London and Alfie pulled through the night and, you know, things changed pretty quickly at that point because when you go through something like that with somebody it's absolutely undeniable that it's going to draw you closer and I remember when little Alf I don't know two three days later he's still on high flow oxygen and he turns to him and says can I call you dad and it just broke my heart it was one of the sweetest things I've ever seen and He started coming down lots more, you know, again, completely different situation for me. I've never had anybody in my life at this point who I can say, okay, yep, this is your time with your children and I can actually be off duty without apologies or thank yous. So this was really unique for me. And, you know, I was determined that I was going to keep a hard face, but that hard face didn't last very long. So I started to fall for him, (laughs) which might seem absolutely bonkers at this point. But, you know, you're spending that much time with somebody. They're your child's father. it's, It's really hard not to develop feelings for them. But it wasn't just about that. It was like we got on so, so well. And I finally felt like I had a partner in all of this. Like it was really quite incredible. 
So you might be able to guess, or you might not, that that man's name, the boy's dad, is Alex. And I am now married to Alex. So <laughs> talk about a turnout for the books, right? It was absolutely uh, not not the plan. But like I say, sometimes the best things in life come from what has not been the plan. Of course, it is not as simple as I'm making out here. Like it was really, really tough. There were a lot of emotions that we had to work through. There's emotions that we still have to work through, things about the past that we still have to work through. But in terms of me, you know, and a support system, suddenly my life looked really, really different. And whatever was going to happen with Alfie, and by this point, you know, it is looking like he is going to have a longer lifespan. Um, I'm not alone in it. I'm not alone in it. When it comes to hospital appointments, anything, I wasn't alone. So things naturally move quite quickly when you're dating the father of your own children. (laughs) So it was just three months before he moved down to Bath. We were pretty sure by that point. Well, no, we were pretty certain by that point because we didn't want to confuse the boys that this was serious, that we were in this for the long run. And it was pretty magical. It was really pretty magical becoming a family And some of my best memories are like those early days. And, you know, I continued to exercise and it was a really great time. And we got married, you know, and the boys were our page boys. They did a, they did a, you know, a little reading. And I'm aware that like, you know, this is a story that really, I could take five episodes just to tell you this story. So I'm condensing it down here, but I'm trying to get to the point about what led me to be a PT. So obviously by this point, right, I know that exercise is great. It makes me feel good. I'm in a much better place in my life. I've got a relationship. Whatever's going to happen with Alf, I'm going to face it with him. But Alfie's situation is looking up. And then we decide to have another baby because actually we felt like it would be a really good thing for us together to have that almost like as a kind of healing experience, the boys to have a little brother. I wanted to have a baby in a different situation. Alex has never been with the boys as babies. So we made that decision, but our genetics are not simple. We're both gene carriers of SMA. So it means that we've got a one in four chance of having a baby with spinal muscular atrophy. We knew straight off the bat, like we we can't have another baby with SMA. Like it, it, it just can't happen. Like when it comes to kit, emotional, everything, no, just couldn't do it. So we knew that we had to have this genetic testing. I didn't know until I was 12 weeks pregnant if um, I was going to be able to continue with the pregnancy. That was really, really tough. So again, it starts bringing up all these emotions about the past because you're kind of reliving it in a different circumstance. So yes, I'm pregnant again, but this time I've got Alex. And but this time, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go ahead with this pregnancy and all these different things. And and my body doesn't like pregnancy. It really doesn't. Like I I feel dreadful. I never glow. I never glow. I feel heavy. I feel just awful. I don't like the way my body looks. I don't like the way my head feels. All of these things. So I got pretty low during that pregnancy. And then when Freddie was born, once again, oh my God, like it's so tough. (laughs) I feel like enough people don't say it. It's so tough. And I'd kind of gone, I'm having one baby this time. So, you know, one baby versus two babies on my own. Ah, this is going to be a walk in the park. No. No walk in the parks. There were no walks. There were lots of walks in the park, but with a screaming baby. You know, Fred was 
kind of born as a wrecking ball and never kind of tempered down. <laughs> so there were long nights, you know, being on my own with him and kind of just, oh, just really, really, really tough. Because at this point, you know, Alfie's still waking multiple times a night. So Alex is on Alfie duty. I'm on Fred duty. There's no room for one another. It, it's really hard, isn't it, to to kind of estimate quite what a pressure it puts on your life when you do have a baby um, and put on a relationship I kind of thought it'd be glorious we'd be sat around going look at us look at us with this lovely baby but it wasn't quite the case I think in retrospect I did have a little bit of postnatal depression I was certainly incredibly incredibly low and had a lot of um you know moments where I just thought I, I can't handle this like I'd be hoisting Alfie by this point you know I have to hoist him I can't lift him or I am lifting him which I've now learned the ben- learned the um punishment with my back but you know, I, I, I'm i hoisting him. I've got a screaming baby in one arm. I'm hoisting him. Alex is working in Bristol, so he's away for long days. It was just, you know, you you think so many times when you're in these situations, I don't know if I can do this, but you do. You come through the other side. And I came through the other side once again. I was in that situation. I just don't know who I am. I don't know who this body is. I don't know where this head is at. And so... I knew that I needed to get fit again. So this time I start in a new community. This is a new gym in Bath where loads of my friends go. My God, stepping onto that gym floor, I'm like shaking at this point. Like I'm so, so scared because A, I'm really scared I'm going to wet myself because my pelvic floor is in bits. (laughs) B, I'm afraid that I'm going to be found out as like a fraud because I literally don't think I could have like got my heart rate above. I don't know. I just was so, you know, so unfit. Had an exercise tool during pregnancy. It's now been like well over a year since I've done anything. And I just had to keep reminding myself, just remember, remember how you felt when you first did it. You know, you weren't an expert then. You were never an expert, but you know, you did push through. So I pushed through. And the same thing happened. The same thing happened. Piece by piece, bit by bit, I came back into myself. I, you know, gained that confidence again in strength. Not in like, what's so interesting is that you gain this confidence with exercise that you think is going to be about, you know, exactly the way that you look externally. But this time it really felt like it was just so much internally. I almost didn't give a shit. Like I just like, you know, be nice to fit back in my jeans. But I'm so grateful at this point for having this tool back in my life, having been at a point where, you know, Fred was three months old, I'm considering going back on antidepressants, you know, I'm stopping breastfeeding, so I'm starting to drink loads more again, all of these things. And suddenly I've got this tool back and it's working and I'm feeling fantastic. And I just knew the second time round, I need women to know. I need them to know about this. Because I know at this point, I'm watching friends go through things in life and things feel heavy. And I know that they don't feel empowered with those situations. They don't feel like they can change it. They feel that their destiny is to feel shit or they feel that healthy is too hard. And at this point, I made a promise to myself and to any woman who ever wanted it that I would be there to guide them through their journey so that they could make that breakthrough. 
Because I know however much you think that you hate exercise or that healthy is hard, that there is another way. And what waits on the other side for you is absolute fucking magic, frankly. And listen, what I'm here saying is absolutely not that it's going to be a smooth sailing, like amazing ride and you'll never look back. In fact, it's the polar opposite. Like, my God, my exercise has fallen off the wagon several times because of things that have been in my control and out of my control. And last year, not being able to exercise for the majority of it because of a slipped disc, I learned the hard way that as women, exercise isn't enough. You've got to load up your tool belt. You have to because those curveballs when it comes to life, they're just going to keep on coming. And I know this might sound a bit bizarre, but everybody has an Alfie, right? Everybody has something in their life that is painful, that they have to deal with on a daily basis. And unless you've got multiple tool, tools in that tool belt, we, it's just, we're just a little bit screwed, right? We're a little bit screwed. We can end up feeling so incredibly lost within that journey. So this is where I think the power of community comes in because it's so refreshing when you're part of a community where that community, you're hearing multiple women going, not nailing it this week. It's not happening this week or, you know, or I'm ill or, you know, I've got a work drama or things like that because you realize that actually no one's lives are simple behind closed doors. Like you might see me like bouncing around super happy on Instagram. I can tell you now that our home life is incredibly tough. Like one thing that I did not realize about having a disabled child is that when your worst nightmare goes away in terms of it's not ever gone away, he's always very, very vulnerable. But in terms of losing them at a young age, when that goes away, it doesn't mean that it's instantly easy. Like life caring for Alf is really rough. Like we are excluded from a huge amount of life. We can't go to many people's houses. You know, we holidays are generally a pretty much a nightmare. We have this financial strain of knowing that we need to, you know, provide a carer's allowance for the rest of his life. It's not easy. It's not easy, but you will have things in your life that are not easy. But am I happy? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm really happy. And can I take the rawness of life? Yes, I can. Because I know that from last year that I have other things that can soothe my nervous system other than exercise. So I know that when I am feeling completely frazzled, that it might just be five minutes of deep breathing, or it might just be I don't know, a little bit of hypnotherapy or nourishing my body with some good food because I actually respect my body now. And that's the difference. I don't see it as this thing that's working against me. I see it as this thing that I need to nurture in order for my brain to be happy. There's no truer saying than health is wealth. And what I want to make really clear before I sort of wrap things up, because I have been talking for a really long time, <laughs> classic, is that I'm not naive to the fact that it's simple that it always goes to plan. You know, I, I really do recognize that it it's not all easy, that there's going to be uncomfortable bits. But I also believe in that saying, you've got to get uncomfortable to get comfortable, right? It's a bit like at the beginning of this podcast, I was a little bit shaky, if I'm honest. <laughs> now I feel like I'm just sat in a room chatting to my friends. Like you've, you've got to push past those boundaries. And that's why I really believe that the She Collective is so special because we're doing it in a way where you're never alone. 
You are never alone. You're with a community. You are making it fun. Like I try and make the workouts as fun as possible. That's like my number one aim. You're taking the heart out of it in that I'm obsessed with the science of women's bodies. So I'm always kind of, you know, programming it to be as effective as possible. But we know that you're going to need to do more. So we focus on the mindset because the mindset is honestly, it's the glue that holds it all together. We bring in other women's wellness experts. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, creating this membership has genuinely been, and you've seen I've been through some hard things, one of the hardest things I have ever done. If I had known how hard it would be, I'm not sure I would have done it. But the thing is, the reason that I have never given up with this membership and I'm pushing it forward, and I think this year, you know, 2024 is going to be an incredible year for our membership is because of that bigger why. So my bigger why is like I've spoken to you that this is a mission, not a membership. You can see where my drive comes from. I've seen the impact that women's wellness, that taking care of our health can have on our lives. So in those really crappy days, in those months where I haven't even like, you know, remotely paid myself and I'm getting, you know, difficult situations or whatever, the bigger why pulls me through and you need to tap in to your bigger why. Like, why do you want to take care of your health? Like, is it for the older you? Is it for the people who you care about? Is it for your own, you know, getting your own spark back? It could be nothing to do with other people. That's totally valid. But that bigger why is going to be so flipping powerful. I often say like, you know, there are going to be days where you would rather shovel shit than, you know, turn up for yourself, get you know, make it to the mat, do whatever it might be to to look after your own well-being. But that's when the bigger why will hold you, you know, will will carry you through. And, you know, there are things that are going to be, have to be a process of unlearning before you learn. Okay. So when it comes to nutrition, one of the biggest challenges I have is getting women to move away from the things that they may have thought. So calorie counting, scales, all of these things. We are dispelling myths. Women's wellness is, is, is coming forward. These things we now know do not work. They don't work. That's why you fall off the wagon. And so, the other thing that I would say about the She Collective and what I'm so proud of is that we are doing things differently. Like we're doing things differently because I learn from every single conversation. I am in those 30 day challenges, in those conversations because I want to learn. I want to learn what's throwing women off track. And there is just so much power in being in it together. And I am so, so proud of where we're at as a community, where we are heading. Like, it's very easy to say that you've got a community. It's a lot harder to actually create one, but we really, really have one. And some of my closest friendships are now some of the members. And I love that. And I know that some of my closest friendships are yet to come in future members. So all I would ask for you from listening to this podcast, from, you know, opening your eyes to the She Collective, whether you're a member or not, is that you come into this with an open heart and an open mind because we can think that we're closed off to things. We can think that that's not for us. But I hope that this episode has shown you that you never know until you try and you never know until you do one simple thing and that's not give up. 
So thank you so, so much for joining me today. Um, it was a little bit more emotional than I was expecting, but I guess that was kind of bound to happen. Um, so the conversations, I need to know from you, what do you want to hear? We're going to be covering all sorts of things from emotional eating to hormone health and beyond. The conversation is going to vary between just being myself and with those women's wellness experts, but I would love to hear what you would like to hear. And final thing, please please, please do do that with um, the little request I asked of you to let me know if you enjoyed it, uh, you know, rate it, review it, subscribe to it. That's the only way that I'll know if this is, <laughs> if this is going to work out, guys. Here's hoping that this is the start of something special. Thank you so much for joining me and I shall see you in a couple of weeks.